We are in the third week of a series that we're calling The Story of Everything. The Story of Everything. We're, we're talking about the basics of what we believe as a church, the basics of what we believe as a follower of Jesus. And, and I think it's pretty important to go back to the basics. You know, a, a great coach will, will take, you know, his team or her team at times back to practice to review the basics. You can't ever get too far away from the basics to keep you on course, to remind you uh, why you do what you do. And, and so we're kind of going back to these basics. And we believe that what we believe is not just a series of statements or theological propositions to be memorized like a creed or a pledge or something. We believe that what we believe as a church, what we believe as followers of Jesus, is a story. Uh, it's a great story, and we believe that story to be contained uh, in this book, in, in the Word of God, that it is true, that it is right, it is accurate, it, it's without error, but that it's a great story that God is telling uh, about all things, about why things happen the way that they do, you know, and, and, and there's a number of things that this great story uh, reveals to us and, and that we're discussing in this story of everything. Understanding the story is important uh, to you and me for at least a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason that I believe is pretty, uh, pretty critical, uh, it's just this story, this story of everything, helps us to understand more about who God is and what he's like. And, and we've all had questions surrounding that before, surrounding who God is and, and what he's like. We, you know, who is he? What, what's he like? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? But there's another reason that I believe is very important in understanding the story of everything, and that has to do with how you and I fit into the story. And we all ask questions like that. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you've been a part of the church all of your life, maybe this is your first Sunday, you haven't been in the church for years, but we tend to ask questions about what's our purpose in all of this? What's my role in all of this? I mean, what's this week to week, month to month, year by year? Where do I fit into everything that's happening around me? I mean, do we just live and die and become dust? Or is there more to this story? Is there a greater picture? Is there something to what's happening all around us right now and the life that we're called to live? Where do I fit into this? In the story, God's word, you know, if we take the time, if we're willing to stay on it, the story of everything, God's word, it answer those que- answers those questions. So we started this series talking about God. And, and I'm going to do some more drawing this morning. I was reminded as I, I was bringing this up here, do you remember the Saturday Night Live skit with Mike Myers where he was like, you know, my name is Simon and I like to do drawings. You know that? You remember that? He sat, has anybody, come on, I've heard, so, okay, a couple of people have seen that skit with me. It's, I, I don't know, when I was bringing this out this morning, I was reminded that I like to do drawings. So we're doing some drawings, but uh, we, we were talking week one about God. God is the main character in the story. He's the main character in the story of everything. And God is, is three persons. If you were here week one, we, we looked at it like this, that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. Uh, that he is, he is three persons, all right? That each is fully God. And, and this is where it's tough to get your mind around. But in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that even though each is fully God, and even though God is three persons, God is one. We believe in one God. There, there's a term that we use in the church. We sometimes, if you're new, if you're new to church, we throw church terms around a lot, and you wonder, like, what in the world does that mean? You know, I don't have the, the, the booklet or whatever. There's a term that we throw around once in a while. It's the term Trinity. And it's not too hard to figure out what Trinity means, but it's broken down into two words. The first is a prefix tri, meaning three. And it's the word unity contained within this word, that these three, each is fully God, three persons, it, they are one. 
God in three persons, the Trinity. We, we talked about this week one. And it's important to understand this because what we see is that, that our God is a community. He is a relationship from, from the very beginning of all things. You know, it, there was no beginning point for God, but he has always been one. He has always been this community of oneness. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. All right, that's how we define God, that God is Love. It doesn't answer all of the questions of God, but it's a pretty good starting place that God is a God of love. And as Genesis describes, this God of love created out of love, he created the world. He created the earth that we live in. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, it says, God says, let us, okay, there, there's a plural term in there, let us, let us as the Trinity, as three persons, each fully God, but one God, let us create man in our own image. Let us create woman in our own image. And so even on this earth that God created out of love, out of love, out of who he is, the very core of who he is, God created out of love, he created man and woman. He he created you and me. God is love week one. Week two, last week we talked about the fact that there is a problem that exists in the world today. The problem stems all the way back to the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve ate from the one tree in the Garden of Eden where God says you can't eat from. You have everything else in the entire world. You can't eat from that one tree. Uh, it, it was used, I, I believe, in such a way to, to, to at least make sure that man was reminded that we, you can't be God. And so there has to be one barrier in the Garden that reminds you that you're God and I'm not. Okay, that, that you're God, or the, the God is God, but the, Adam, you're not God. Eve, you're not God. And so God put the tree there. He said he can't eat, but, but Adam and Eve ate from this tree. And what happens, and what we discovered last week, is now sin uh, is the problem that exists in the world today. It stems all the way back to the book of Genesis. Sin is the problem. And that problem creates this barrier in our ability to have a relationship with God. Sin isn't necessarily rules and regulations broken. It isn't that rule 4.17-2 was broken. It's that this relationship with God has been tainted. It's been smeared. You know, it continues even today. There's this brokenness. There's this gap that exists. Sin is the problem. But today we're going to discover that Jesus Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the answer to the great problem of the world today, that Jesus, and the symbol that we typically see in the cross, that Jesus, the cross, is the bridge that provides the opportunity for you and me to have a relationship once again with God, that we have been made right with God because of the death and sacrifice of Jesus. We, we have to choose this relationship. It's not forced upon us, but there is a way back to God that's offered to me, it's offered to you as a result of the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus. And and I want us to get this right. I want us to see a few important truths about Christ's life this morning, maybe some that we overlook. Because the truth is that there are a wide variety of opinions today on who Jesus really is. I want to show you one illustration. There are a number of opinions today on who Jesus is. I'm sure if we went around the room, we'd probably come up with a collection of some, some right, some wrong. You know, if you think about the people that you work with and some of the conversations that you have at work, you know, at times about God or about Jesus, you know, there are many different opinions on who Jesus really is. Some say, you know, I won't, I won't go there that he's God. All right, they'll, they'll say, I won't go there that Jesus is, is the Son of God, but I will acknowledge that He was born, that He lived, and, and that He maybe even died on a cross, that He was a good man. 
or, or Jesus was someone, he, he did a lot of nice things. Or I'll even go this far and say that, again, while I won't acknowledge that he's God, I will say that he was a great moral teacher, maybe someone worth following. Writer and professor C.S. Lewis had a personal problem with people uh, suggesting that Jesus wasn't the son of God, but saying he was this great moral teacher worth following. Here's what he writes. He once said, a man who was merely a man, who was merely a man, this is Jesus he's talking about, and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Uh, it comes from his famous discourse where he says, you know, you've got to come to some point uh, of a place in your life where you say he was either Lord or he was a liar or a lunatic. He can't be all three. He was either truly who he said he was, Lord, or he was a liar or a lunatic. Again, most people know something of Jesus, and whether it be the stories of his life, uh, death on the cross, or, or resurrection, you know, more are at least familiar with the cross. You know, we, we click, quickly look to the cross and remember Jesus Christ for his death. But if we really want to understand the, the full scope of the story of Jesus' life and the important part that he plays, uh, we need to recognize that while Jesus' death is indeed the most important part of the story, it's not the whole story. And that's what I want to look at today. Jesus' story began a long time before his virgin birth on that very first Christmas. And it goes well beyond his death and even his resurrection. John chapter 1 verse 1 says it this way. In the beginning was the Word. And as we discovered in week one, that word that he was referring to is another term for the Son. It's another term for Jesus Christ. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. You know, I am this Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. You know, the, the story of Jesus is more than just the words we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story of Jesus, believe it or not, is everything from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, everything that happens in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, even in those obscure situations where you don't really understand what's happening, it's all pointing to Jesus. And all through the Old Testament, and even through all the wars and all the battles and all the disasters, it's all preparing people for Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. You know, every book, every chapter, every verse, it's, it's about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And so, so there's so much to learn about Jesus. Even, even John wrote in John chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And ironically enough, that more books have been written today about Jesus Christ than anyone else. So how do we begin to get our minds around Jesus' role in the story this morning? Well, I want to turn our attention to one place in Scripture that I believe gives a pretty good, um, a pretty good picture uh, of kind of the scope of Jesus and what his life represents. And so if you go to the book of Philippians with me, that, that's where we'll be for most of the time this morning, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 5. So if you've got your own Bibles, go there. We'll have the verses on the screen. But Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. These seven verses... Uh, capture the story of Jesus from beginning to end. I, I want to read each, all seven of them for you here as we start just to give you a scope uh, picture of what Paul's writing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He writes, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
That's to you and me. Paul, even though he's writing these words to the people living in Philippi who are part of this church, they're true today. They're for you and me. Here's what Paul says. Your attitude, every day of your life, everything that you do, your family, you're at work, you're at school, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So these words here appear in the letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. But here's what's interesting about these words that Paul uses here. He did not write these words. These words here are actually being borrowed from a song that had been written. Uh, Theologians call it a Christological hymn. That at this point in history, uh, a group of people, the church, had written a song to best touch on, to describe who Jesus was. And these are those words. If you're looking in your Bible, these particular words might be italicized or they might be kind of offset a little bit. It's to help you and I understand that this is this Christological hymn that Paul is referring to to help drive home his point that he's trying to make to these people. And and so that's where we get, get these words. So here's what I want to see. There are, I believe, three parts to these seven verses that help give us a greater picture of who Jesus is and what his life represents. And I want to look at those three briefly. The first one is this, the first part we see in verses five through seven. Let me read it again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, this first part in the story, uh, there's a word that I want to use. We've got the word on the screen if you're taking notes. It's the word incarnation. Uh, That this hymn uh, describes for us that Jesus is the incarnation. Now, when it says that Jesus was in very nature God, but didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, uh, the Bible says that he made himself nothing. Uh, Other translations say that he emptied himself of everything that he was. He made himself nothing. He didn't give up being God. Instead, Jesus willfully surrendered the divine luxuries he had always enjoyed. You know, before the incarnation, before Jesus came to the earth, you know, he, 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 he was everything God. And he didn't give up this divine ship. He did not give up being God in any way. But Jesus came to the earth and, and he came he, before he knew God's existence. That's all he knew. He knew God's self-sufficiency, self-sustaining, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, always present, no limits. Okay, he was God. He is God. He, but he emptied himself in the incarnation. He made himself nothing so that he could come to the earth and live like you and me. And we'll understand why he did that just a little bit more. But, you know, why would he do something like that? Why, why would Jesus give up his place in this community of oneness, in this community of love, to come and live on the earth, to be the incarnation uh, for you and me? I was reading this past week that the Soviet Union... Well, they were the first to put a man into space, and, and many of you maybe already knew that. The first cosmonaut, a guy by the name of Yuri Gagarin, and uh, Nikita Khrushchev was the premier when Gagarin uh, went to space. And he was an outspoken advocate of atheism. And following Gagarin's su- successful mission, Khrushchev made the following statement worldwide. 
Here's what he said. We have been to the heavens and God was not there. Said this to the entire world. We have been to the heavens and God was not there. Now, C.S. Lewis, who we talked about just a second ago, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, he responded saying, if there was a God, you would not relate to him like someone on the first story of a building would relate to someone on the second story. That if you just went upstairs, you would find them. If there is a God, you would relate to him in the way Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare. Hamlet will not find Shakespeare going backstage or looking up in the rafters. The only way Hamlet discovers anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. Now, I read that a few times and I didn't understand what it meant, but I'm getting there with it. There's one thing that I want you to see in this that I believe he touches on here. The story of Jesus is more than just Jesus dying for our sin. Again, as important as that is. The incarnation, Jesus living on the earth, reminds us that God has not just simply written a book about himself. The story of everything, the incarnation, shows us that God has written himself into the story. He's written himself into our story. He, Jesus Christ, came to the earth as God, as a man, so that you and I could relate with him. That we could understand what it was like to have a relationship with him. And if you've ever wondered to yourself, you know, what, what's God like? I mean, what's God like? I, I, I'm here to tell you that you don't have to look any farther than Jesus. Because Jesus is God. He is fully God. And you can read the pages of Scripture. You, you can take the time to invest and to study and understand what God is like. You know, God becomes a part of the story in Jesus so that he can actually be known. And this is one of the unique beliefs that sets Christianity apart from all other religions in the world today. I mean, you know, although Muslims and, and even Jews respect Jesus as a great teacher, no Muslim would ever fathom that Muhammad would claim to be God or claim to be Allah or any Jew claiming that Moses was Yahweh. You know, Hindus believe in many incarnations, but they don't believe in the incarnation. Buddhists have no categories in which to conceive this idea of a sovereign God becoming a human being living like you and me. And that's Jesus. That, that's what we see in Jesus, that he is fully God, but he came to this earth as the incarnation. He came to the earth as a man so that we could know him and relate with him. You know, for Christians, you know, again, this, this reminds us that of who Jesus is. The, the incarnation gives us a picture of what our God is like. I love, I love this. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher who lived a couple of hundred years ago, he wrote this parable to help us better understand the significance of the incarnation. Here's that parable. He writes, It's like the story of a king that loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the court. She dressed in rags. She lived in a little shack. But for reasons that no one could ever figure out, the king fell in love with this girl. Why he would love her is beyond explaining, but love her he did. Then there awoke in the heart of a king an anxious thought. How was he to reveal his love to this girl? His advisors, of course, would tell him to simply command her to be his queen, for he was a man of immense power and she would have no power to resist. But power, even unlimited power, cannot command love. He could force her to be present in his palace he could not force love for him to be present in her heart. He longed for intimacy of heart and oneness and spirit. All the power in the world cannot unlock the door to the human heart. 
it must be opened from the inside. He considered showering her with gifts, but in the end, how would he know, or she either for that matter, if she loved him for her himself or for all that he gave her? Every alternative came to nothing. There was only one way. So one day the king rose, left his throne, removed his crown, and laid aside his royal robes. He took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, scratched out a living in the dirt, dwelt in a hovel. He didn't just take on the outward appearance of a servant. It became his actual life, his burden. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that she could be united to him forever. It was the only way. That's the story of the incarnation that Jesus, he gave up everything that he enjoyed to come and be like one of us so that that love could be real, so that we would understand how real his love is, that he was willing to sacrifice his own life in such a way. You know, God emptied himself and became a, a human being. He became this servant. It was the only way to ultimately live out the story of everything. He came so that you and I could know him and so that we could understand his love. I mean, he wants you to love him back. But in order to motivate that love, he became like one of us. And if you want to get the story of everything, you have to start here. You have to get this place in Jesus God came and walked on this earth. The second part that we see uh, in the story is the part that we're most familiar with, and it's, the, it's Jesus dying on the cross. Theologians call it the atonement. It's part two in, in this little discourse in Philippians, this Christological hymn. It's the word atonement. Uh, we see it here in verse 8. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, this is Jesus, he humbled himself, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in Jesus, God atoned for our sins. Now, let me give you just a a simple definition of the word atonement, if you're taking notes. I don't have it on the screen, but it's this. The atonement is the work Jesus did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Let me say that again. The atonement is the work Jesus did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Now, we could spend the rest of the year trying to break down and understand fully all the intricacies of the atonement. I've got it down to, I think, three minutes for today. So I'm going to give you kind of a three-minute cliff notes overview uh, of, of this, uh, the atonement. If you've spent any time at all reading through the Old Testament, chances are you've run across some really obscure passages, uh, situations that don't seem to make sense. One of those that can be a little difficult to understand at times is the sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see these pictures of people bringing animals to the temple to offer as a sacrifice. They brought birds, uh, people brought goats, people brought lambs to the temple to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And the religious law of the time required that blood be shed for the forgiveness of sins. There was a penalty for sin and that penalty required a payment And the right payment was bloodshed. 
Now, the book of Leviticus spells out specifically, in some situations, the prescription for forgiveness. You know, maybe something like you're backing out of your driveway with your chariot and you roll over your neighbor's dog and kill it. Then you've got to take, you know, two doves to the temple and sacrifice them for the forgiveness of sins. Well, maybe not that exact situation, but there are some things that are pretty specific like that. And while these sacrifices offered at the temple were satisfying and pleasing to God and allowed for temporary forgiveness for the individual, no penalty had been paid. And again, God required that there was a penalty for sin. You know, and as the book of Romans teaches us, it says, for the wages of sin is death. There is a payment that needs to be paid for sin. And as the Bible teaches us, the payment for that sin is ultimately death. Now, why? Why does God require such a payment? Well, again, this is where it gets a little tough but this is just what I've come up with this morning. We believe that God is love, as 1 John 4, 8 says. We also believe, as the Bible teaches, that God is a just God, that he is right, that he is holy, that he can have no place with sin. And because he's a just God, uh, something needs to be atoned for. The, this sin, the sin, the separation that separates, that, that this broken relationship that was created has to be atoned for. There is a payment that is required for the penalty of that sin. You know, and, and we could not be made right again with God unless some sort of penalty was paid. That's why the sacrifices were required in the Old Testament. Someone had to die. But what was God's ultimate plan? Because there was a final penalty that had to be paid, a final payment. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes will not perish. Won't be forced to pay the penalty for themselves. They won't perish, but have eternal life. God sent his only son, Jesus, the incarnation, to come to this earth as the final payment the final sacrifice for sins. That's why we sometimes refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the perfect, unblemished, final sacrifice. It's why there are no sacrifices anymore today because the final sacrifice has already been laid down. It's Jesus Christ. He is this perfect Lamb that has paid the price for sins. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, God presented Him, Jesus, okay, as a sacrifice of atonement. The perfect final sacrifice. You know, in Jesus, God atoned for our sins. He, he substituted himself for us. He took our place. Now, you might understand this better than I do, or maybe you're hearing this for the first time ever. But it's so easy, regardless of where you are in all this, to truly miss and understand what this means. I mean, one man said it this way, sin is man substituting himself for God. The atonement is God substituting himself for man. And that's what God did for us. That's what he did for us through Jesus is he substituted himself. Some people call it the substitutionary atonement. He stepped in and took our place. He took our penalty. He took our sin so that we could be saved. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Poland uh, with a team from the church where I was serving. And, and some of you have heard me tell this story before, so, so bear with me if you have. But while we were there in Poland, we were there for about a week. We took a day off from our work and went to near Krakow to where Auschwitz and Birkenau are located. And Auschwitz and Birkenau are a concentration and a death camp. Uh, Birkenau kind of made... Um, 
I don't think famous is the right word, but in the movie Schindler's List, uh, it, it was just this incredible death camp where people went to die. They, they didn't go there to live or survive. They, they went there uh, to die. And, and you leave uh, having visited places like that with some mixed emotions. On, on the one hand, I'm so grateful that I saw it. But on the other hand, it, it kind of sticks with you, the reality of what takes place in our world and even today, what's happening in different places. And, and, and so there are definitely these mixed emotions. But as we walked around Auschwitz and Birkenau with a tour guide, there's one story that our tour guide told that, that I'll never forget. We were walking up and down the streets of Auschwitz and, and just all these horrible, horrendous things that happened at Auschwitz. And there are all of these uh, bunkers of sorts that are located on every brick street. And, and, you know, men and women would live in these bunkers or these dormitories. And, and the Nazis just did all sorts of crazy things for, for to play mind games and with intimidation and such. But but every day and even several times throughout the day, they would do roll call for every, every dormitory. And so on this one particular morning, our roll call was to take place on this brick street where we were standing, looking at this building right on, on this particular ledge. And all of the men would line up. And there, there might be 50, 60 men. I'm not sure the exact number. But on this one day, they were one short. And being one short might mean good news for the guy who managed to somehow escape and leave for freedom. But because of that one man's act, there was a penalty that had to be paid by all of the men living in the dormitory. And so it wasn't uncommon for the Nazis to select 20 random men for death because one man left, because one man broke the rules to take 20 men that would have to pay the penalty for this one man's uh, selfishness, if you could call it that. And, And so they were grabbing men on this particular day and they grabbed one man who whose his response was just different than all others. I mean, he immediately collapsed and started wailing and crying and and talking about his wife and his children and who would take care of them. And there was one man standing in the line who wasn't chosen, but he he was a priest. His name was Father Maximilian Kolb. And so moved in that moment, he stepped out from the lines and for whatever reasons that the Nazis allowed it on that particular day, they allowed Father Maximilian Kolb to take this man's place And the man who had collapsed was brought to his feet and put back in line. And Father Maximilian Kolb went with the other men to the starvation chamber where within a week he he died. He gave his own life for this one particular man. And there are stories that have been told about this priest, but also this man whose life was spared and how he survived Auschwitz and was reunited with his family. And his life was radically altered because of that one moment on that street outside of his dorm in a place called Auschwitz where another man gave his life so that he could live. I don't know if I will ever fully comprehend this side of heaven, what Jesus Christ did for me when he gave his life on the cross for my life. And and I'm still kind of wrestling with that a little bit, and I hope that maybe you will too that you'll kind of make that a part of your journey, a part of your story of truly understanding and recognizing what it means that Jesus Christ gave his life for you, that he stepped in as your substitution and was willing to pay the penalty that was required for sin. You know, that, that I have life today, that I am forgiven, that I have hope because of what Jesus Christ did for me and that he did it for you too. And I think if we were ever come to a place where we truly would, would even get close at understanding the significance of all this, we, our lives would be radically changed. 
I mean, there are some people that you watch how they serve Jesus, you know, morning, day, and night, and you wonder, where in the world does all that come from? I, I like to believe that they've got a little better glimpse of what it means that Jesus was willing to pay this price for them. And, and if you're not at that place where you don't, you, know, you don't understand what it means to surrender and to give more of yourself, I, I think you, you probably don't, you don't get this yet. You know, you're still working on it or still working through it. I have to come back to it all the time. But that we could be forgiven and freed from sin and from its power and be fully reconciled with God. If we truly understood that, it would change everything for us. I mean, his death and sacrifice, it it covers everyone. The price of sin, the penalty that was required has been paid. But if you remember from the parable from a moment ago, you know the one about the king and the servant girl? Here's a pretty important part of that story. The king realized and recognized that he couldn't force his love upon that woman. And that's the one crazy thing that God allows for us. He will not force his love upon you. He's not going to try and force or jam his love into your heart. It's available. We talk about it every week, and some of you keep waiting for some magic to happen. And you're the one person standing in the way of truly understanding and realizing what it means that God, that Jesus Christ died for you. You know, that you're, you're forgiven, that, that you have been atoned for. I mean, the, the story of everything is about God. It's about Jesus pursuing us, you know, seeking rescue for us, that he loved you so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate price. Maybe today is the day that some of you finally accept that love and realize what that means. Third part, last part in this, uh, we, we've got one more piece to see here in, in Philippians. It, it's the final part of the story. You know, Jesus is the incarnation. He's the atonement. We see the third piece beginning in verse 9. Paul, Paul writes down here, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Notice the words here that God exalted him. It says, and that at his name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Revelation gives us, or um, Philippians here gives us a picture that one day every knee will bow. Lord, liar, lunatic, every day, one, every per, one day every person will know and realize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Now, it doesn't mean, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, that everyone gets the rewards of heaven and eternity with God. All right, because you've got to make that decision on this side of that moment. But there will come a day where everyone will realize and know that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord of all. And, and that's what Paul's speaking of here. But there's, So there is some future language that's being used here of something still to come. These words describe a future event. It's the part of Jesus' story that is yet to come, the part that we as followers of Jesus are awaiting for. Jesus is coming back one day. All right, He, he didn't say, okay, I did the cross thing, you're forgiven, now kind of make the most of life and I'll be back to pick you up around four or something, all right? And what we're going to get here is a picture that there is something else yet to come. Jesus said, I am coming back, and it's the third part of our story here that you can label it this way, return and restoration. That Jesus' life is about the incarnation, his life is about the atonement. We can also say that Jesus' life is about the return and the restoration of all things. Now, we can be pretty familiar with Jesus' birth and his life and his death and the resurrection and miss this part of the story. And this is so critical for us as followers of Jesus and as a church. While, while the atonement is critical, while the incarnation is critical, they are incomplete 
without holding to the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back again one day and there will come a day where he will restore all things finally once and for all. He is coming again. He is coming back and it could happen any day and not living knowing this or realizing this and we're all guilty of this. I mean, we, we all, you know, we run around and we, we kind of do life and we get so off focus, you know, of what it means to, to, to live our lives for Jesus Christ. We're all guilty of this. You know, doing that is like going to a great movie and, and walking out before the end of the story, before, before the great climax. You know, or it's like me when I was a freshman in high school. We had to read Gone with the Wind. Thousand pages, you know, I... I I, I, I got to 900. I mean, I, I like came crawling into 900, took the test, you know, got my A or B or something or whatever. I didn't even finish the book. I never went back and finished the book. You would have thought, you know, I'd want to check that off my list, but I wasn't there in that place in my life. But, you know, I didn't finish the story. You know, I, I missed the ending. And Jesus' return is the climax of the story of everything. I mean, it's the great finish. And we can't miss this important finish. Now, let me look at it from a different perspective for a second. As we discussed last week, I mean, think for a moment how discouraging and frustrating it is to watch the news and to hear all of the stories of pain and suffering and poverty around the world, even here in Indianapolis. I mean, there's war in Afghanistan and the AIDS crisis in Africa, the the brokenness and the loss in Haiti right now, or, you know, a murder on the east side of Indy. All right, it's all around us. Have you ever asked yourself, where does God fit into all of this? Where does this loving God fit into all of this pain and the suffering that takes place? I've asked that question before. I'm not going to lie. No, I, I wonder how you make sense of all of it. Well, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus talked about his return to the earth one day, once and for all. And he used a term. It's the Greek word palin genesis, P-A-L-I-N genesis. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things. This is the Palin Genesis. The Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Now, now notice the details in the words. What does Jesus' life mean? Uh, What does Jesus' return mean? Well, Jesus' story is about his life on the earth. It's about the incarnation. Jesus' story and Jesus' life is about the atonement. But his story is also about the renewal of all things. The word renewal, get this, don't miss this. The word renewal means to restore to a former state to make things right once again. I mean, do you see it? Jesus, his life, his teachings are all about getting things back to the way they used to be. That this barrier of sin, this penalty of sin is finally destroyed. The brokenness that affects the world today that we see in every catastrophe and crisis and broken marriage. Jesus is about being the restorer, the renewer, putting all things back together the way they were intended to be his mission is to renew the earth no more earthquakes no more hurricanes that's a part of jesus mission jesus mission is about renewing the political system no more wars that's the work that jesus is up to jesus mission is to renew the social system in the world no more hatred or or or, or um uh, among races or ethnic groups jesus mission is to restore or renew the economy no more exploitation by the wealthy and the powerful dictators Jesus' mission was to renew the human heart, to make it right, to restore it to its original intent, that there wouldn't be this broken relationship between you and me and God, that he has created a way, he's provided a bridge, he's provided a path from his death to renew all things, to get them back to the way they used to be. One pastor put it this way. Jesus insisted that his return will be with such power 
that the very material world and universe will be purged of all decay and brokenness. And then get this, and all will be healed. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. But there's something else that happened. The writer of Revelation talks about Jesus' renewal of all things this way. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's, That's a picture that we get the moment that Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. No more tears. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, again, it's easy to miss this part about, of the story. I mean, when we think about Jesus, we think about his life and we think about his death and his resurrection. And we're quickly reminded about our personal salvation, you know, our ticket to heaven. And, and again, I'm not discounting that in any way. That is the most important part of the story, but there's more to it. And this morning we're reminded that there is more to the story of everything. And that's going to be our focus over these next few weeks. That Jesus came, he died, but then here's what he did. He set the stage for you and me to partner with him, with God, in making things right in this world once again. That's the role, that's the purpose, that's the part we've been invited to play in the story of everything. Jesus sets the stage of sorts, for the renewal and the restoration of all things that began with his death and resurrection. It began with his resurrection. It's continuing today, and it will finally culminate when he returns again. As one writer said, it's as if heaven and earth today now overlap. That there's a portion of heaven and earth overlap, and we're living in this overlap today. You know, that Jesus is at work in this world, you know, today through the church, through you and me, to make things right again. Jesus is at work to help people find their way back to god friends that is our mission and our purpose as followers of jesus that we are joining god in the renewal and restoration of all things and helping people find their way back to him made possible through the death and the sacrifice of jesus christ we exist to partner with god in the process of restoring all things we play a role in this overlap our role is to help usher in the good news of jesus and to make this world right one piece, one life at a time. What does it look like? Briefly, before we close, I wanted to share with you an update. We've got four people right now in Haiti this morning uh, worshiping down there, and uh, Internet communications a little uh, scattered at times. I was able to get an update, uh, what was last night late, 11.24 p.m., from Mike Jackson. Uh, Mike, uh, Daniel Kopik, Carrie Frege, and... Um, uh, and Mike Parton are down there right now. And uh, Mike Jackson shared this brief update with me. I want to share with you a portion of it. Uh, he writes, we're good. Sorry I haven't updated. Small computer time and long delays. Uh, we have worked two days in the village using the medical clinic, which I think is just unbelievable that we got to be a part in helping get that medical com- clinic finished or mostly finished before this, this earthquake took place. Again, just how good is God? And, and thanks for your generosity in that. One day, uh, they filled, uh, since they've been there, 1,200 food bags uh, made up of rice, beans, and oil uh, for two weeks and some clothes. Uh, Daniel Kopik, who works in construction, uh, worked with an architect in Haiti to put together ideas for a hospital that should begin construction in the village very soon. Uh, Mike and Carrie worked uh, for the, in, in a pharmacy. Uh, today, and this is yesterday, they write, we went into the National Soccer Stadium in Port-au-Prince. It's now a tent camp. We set up a mobile clinic out of the awesome bus, and it's not an awesome bus. I've seen the bus. He's being sarcastic here. We saw somewhere between 800-plus people in the medical clinic. 
this is funny. He writes, Mike Parton is truly a gifted pharmacist, which if you know Mike Parton, that's hilarious. He plays the keyboard, and it doesn't surprise me what it, uh, that he's a, a fan of pharmacology. Uh, Carrie Frege is an exceptional triage nurse. Uh, nurse Daniel Kopic helped secure the area we set up in. It was a little hectic, uh, and we handed out to every child, in addition to the food items, a small stuffed animal. Uh, you should ask about our experiences. We saw many injuries going back to the quake and lots of illnesses and symptoms of malnourishment. Uh, the people in the tents are tired and scared, but many are strong in their faith, and it shows me how squishy mine is at times. At the end of the day in the stadium, the food bags we prepared were distributed. We had theoretically made enough for all of the families there. We had the Haitian police there with us to manage the crowd for the project. Now get this but it was actually the Haitians who passed out food to one another. It was really hectic at first, but the people seemed very grateful and relieved for what they were receiving. Many of these people are on the verge of malnutrition. The damage to structures is a little overwhelming. Uh, While they're estimating 250,000 people dead right now, there are buildings full of people who are not accounted for in that total. God has moved here. And uh, we've meshed with all these folks from Seymour, Indiana, and Campus Crusade. Uh, please pay f- pray for Esperando. And then he writes this, Just for the record, today was declared a national day of prayer in Haiti. CNN called it a national day of mourning. But as we drove through the city today, you could hear many churches worshiping as we drove all throughout, up and down the streets. Uh, just an example of God putting things back together through the power of Jesus. You know, what's it look like for us? You know, every time we collect food here, we are partnering with God in the work that he's doing to make things right once again. Every time we put together a toiletry bag for someone, we are partnering with God in the work that he is doing to make things right in the world once again. Every time you give an hour of your time to serve with some of our children in the Gen Kids ministry, you are partnering with God in the work that he is doing to make things right in this world once again. Every time we see a couple who decides to go after their marriage and believe that God could bring it back together, we get to see the fruits of the work that God is doing in this world to make things right once again. Every every time a lonely person is connected to Christ-centered community here at at Genesis, every time you know we, we, we see a student who now has hope before they go out into the real world to live, we believe and we know that we get to partner with God in the work that he is doing to make things right in this world once again. We we live in this overlap. The victory has already been won in Jesus. We live in the victory, but we eagerly await the return of our Savior. And until he comes back, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. We're we're living in this overlap as we wait for Jesus, helping people find their way back to God. And Jesus is the incarnation. He's the atonement. But Jesus is the restorer of all things, making them right again. He is putting this world back together one piece at a time. And here's the crazy thing about it. He can put your broken life back together too. I I want to invite you just right as we finish up here, I I want to allow you to be selfish with the story for a moment. To believe, to know, to realize that when, when, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, you were a part of his motivation. That that when Jesus Christ walked around putting his hands on the physically broken and the emotionally broken, the hurting, you were a part of his motivation. Your your face was on his mind. That when Jesus went to the cross, when he gave his life to pay the penalty for sin, a part of that motivation was, was you. 
It was the work that he had come to do to provide rescue to you and me. He did it to show you that he loves you. And I want to know if you're ready to receive that love this morning. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for Jesus, the hero of the story. We thank you, Lord, for his life. We thank you for his death and his resurrection and for what that means to us today, for what that means you know, for followers of Jesus here today who have given their life to him but just are so frustrated right now and living in such a difficult time, God. I pray that your strength would be real in them this morning. God, I pray that we'd be reminded today that, that your, your life, your death, your, your resurrection, Father, and as we eagerly await your return, that we've got work to do. And it isn't about creating a checklist with more things to do. It, it is about knowing and understanding that we have a purpose in this world, that we have a role to play. I mean, the victory has been won. The battle has already been fought. It's already been won. But we get to live in this overlap where we partner with you in making things right in this world, God. And I want to pray for men and women, students here today, God, who don't know you and don't know your love, have never invited you to be the Lord of their life. God, could today be the day where they say with their own mouth, God, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. And give me a hope worth living for. You can say those words this morning, you know, wherever you are. We'll have a team of people up front after the service that would love to talk with you and pray with you, talk with you a little bit more about it, but you can do it in your seat right now. God, thank you for Jesus. Forgive me of my sins and give me a life worth living. May we know and understand that today. May we truly celebrate the life of Jesus, not just a life lived, but a life that's living today. The life that we've been called for. We thank you.